with the good mic control. <laughs> um, welcome. Uh, this evening, we are going to be looking at the principles of the second commandment in its New Testament context. Um, as we stated last week, the second commandment is concerned primarily with the proper worship of our one true God. And we saw that the second commandment in its Old Testament context and its Old Testament setting clearly taught what we call the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship, worship teaches this. When the church keeps the second commandment, they are abstaining from any means of worship that God has prohibited in His Word and that they are keeping all the necessary means of worship that God has explicitly exhorted in His Word. It's both abstaining and keeping exactly. Though New Covenant Christians have different means of worship in contrast from the old, the principle of the second commandment still remains for us. It is ours. So this evening, we will look at the essential elements of New Testament worship. We will be primarily concerned with corporate worship, um, but there will be some application towards private devotion as well. Again, we want to continue this pattern of positive and negative application uh, so that in order to aid us in getting the full scope of what is intended in the second commandment. So we'll have the, positive, or the negative prohibition and the positive exhortation of the second commandment in the New Testament context. With that said, let's read our text. It's going to be from Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. And we'll pray afterwards that God's blessing would be upon us. So Colossians 2, verse 20. Colossians 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we come before your text humbled as those who often seek after such means. People who love to add to your worship because it's something that we enjoy, something that we think is beneficial. But Lord, your word has given us everything. It is sufficient to teach us how you are to be worshipped. Help us. Help us to hear what is clearly taught from scriptures and help me to clearly teach what is found in your scriptures alone. Lord, we ask this not in our own glory, for our own fame, but we do this for the Christ that we have been called to serve and worship. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So, Starting off, our first point, the prohibitions of the second commandment. To give us a little background to our passage, Paul is writing to praise God for the Colossians' reception of the gospel and their obedience to it. Also, Paul wants to underscore the doctrine of Christ's supremacy, that he is above all things, that he's better than all things, because Paul did not want the Colossians to be taken away by persuasive arguments. 2 verse 4. These persuasive arguments were coming from the culture that were all around the Colossians, those influenced by Jewish mysticism and pagan philosophy 
and asceticism. As we zoom in to Colossians 2, verse 20 through 21, we see that this culture and their ideologies were demanding things. They were saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, this godless culture was insisting that true religion, religion as they understood it, had to look a certain way. These idolaters were challenging the freedom of the Christian. You see, the freedom of the Christian as it was expressed in their worship practices, was offensive to these idolaters. It's not that these Christians were licentious or immoral, according to biblical standards, to God's standards. No. Far from it. Christians were only seen as immoral because of the puffed-up, legalistic eyes of these idolaters in Colossae. The culture around the church was screaming, Our way is better. Our piety is stricter. So it must be better. We afflict ourselves, so our religion is better. Our tradition has more, so it is better. Our arguments, our worldview, our whatever this or that that they could think of is better. So our way has to be better. In response to these things, in response to these idolaters, Paul simply states these words. These, their rules, their teachings, have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What Paul is saying here is basically this. Yeah, you have those rules, but what good are they? Who cares if you have this or that good teaching in in your own eyes? Does it grow you in Christ? Does it show the supremacy of the gospel? Does it glorify our God? And of course the answer is no. Those man-made traditions and rules were not in accord with what God had revealed in Christ Jesus. The church at Colossae believed the gospel of Jesus and practiced their piety according to God's revealed word, not according to the culture that was around them, however severe it might have seemed. Brothers, this is where the modern church needs to perk up. This passage speaks directly to our day. We may not have Jewish mysticism or pagan asceticism at our door, but we do have other ideologies ramming our gates daily, demanding us to either give up our faith for a false religion or to practice our faith as they see fit. In recent years, the church of Jesus Christ has been beckoned to accept and garner support for all peoples, regardless of lifestyles, beliefs, or practices. And it is all done under the banner of love and tolerance and peace. We hear this all the time. Christians, and it's typically evangelicals, you know, the rough ones, the ones who are a little bit stubborn. They need to learn to love and be accepting of homosexuals. Christians need to be affirming of women's roles, saying, oh, yes, uh, you, need to become, uh, you need to have female elders. You need to have female leadership. Christians need to understand the woman's right to choice. Christians need to relax on their exclusivity. Christians should rethink holding to that embarrassing position of the inerrancy of the Holy Scripture. Come on. You see, brothers, our day is just like the Colossians. The world says our way is better It's more noble, it's more loving, it's more informed, it's more tolerant, and so on, and so on, and so on. But brothers, this is not our way. We have a better way. We've died, as Paul says, to this world. That worldly way has some resemblance of love or nobility on the surface. 
It might make you look good according to the world's eyes. But once you put on the lens of Scripture, you realize that the world's way, the culture way, is bankrupt. It doesn't kill sin. It doesn't lead to holiness. It doesn't glorify Christ in His gospel. It can't because it is not rooted in God's revealed word. As Paul goes on to argue in Colossians 3.16, let's read that quickly. This is what Paul says in contrast to this false ideology. He says this, he commands this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, rather than giving ourselves to the appearance of wisdom, we, the church of Jesus Christ, should give ourselves to the word of God, the word of Christ, which teaches and admonishes us with all wisdom, with true wisdom, not the resemblance, not a false veneer of wisdom. Now, brothers, what I've outlined for us, I would all say that we absolutely understand that this is clear to us, right? Of course, we are based in the Scriptures. Of course, it is God's gospel that we are held accountable to. It is God's word that we must submit our knees to. Of course, the the church shouldn't bend its knees to the world. This is one of the most prevalent themes in all the New Testament. We know this. But that said, too often, Bible-believing, evangelical churches can be just as worldly as false churches. They just do it in a more acceptable expression of worldliness. And often, we don't call it out for what it is. Now, the worldliness of false churches under the sway of the culture is idolatrous. They break the second commandment. They do not worship God according to his word. But the same can be said of many evangelical churches. Through ignorance of God's word and allegiance to more acceptable forms of worldliness, many evangelical churches break the second commandment as well. And it is pertinent for us to parse out these details so that we as Grace Baptist, as a body of Jesus Christ, might not fall into the same allurements. Now, before we get into modern issues, a quick warning is needed. We are about to outline some practices of our churches, of other churches, churches that our parents, friends, and loved ones go to, are members of, and churches that love and serve the Lord, and that the Lord loves as well, despite their failure on this point. So we need to be reminded of this, brothers. This is not a lesson or a sermon on how everyone else gets it wrong, but us. Far from it. We should not be in the practice of needless slander and accusation, either corporately or privately. So if you are so moved by this sermon that you need to go correct your mother about her church or their worship, do not blame me for what happens. Do not let your zeal for the commandments of God become a stumbling block for others so that they might curiously and happily explore the Word of God with us. We are thinking through the implications of the Ten Commandments, something that the broader culture does not do well at all. So though we believe these truths to be vitally important to the church and for the health of the church, we need to approach our family and our friends with love, care, and a winsome spirit, a loving spirit. We do, not need, to, we do need to explain the truth of God's commands. This is important. We must proclaim truth, but we need to do it with gentleness and respect. 
Now, with that said, I want to illustrate what I mean by modern churches having an acceptable form of worldliness. This acceptable form of worldliness can be summarized into two categories. And I put them here for you, pragmatism and man worship. Pragmatism and man worship. By pragmatism, I mean the ideology based in 17th century rationalism, whereby man's reason is made the central guiding principle for faith and practice. You see, rationalism says this. Well, this seems reasonable to me. I understand it. I find it. I think it makes sense. In terms of worship, we can certainly see such attitudes prevailing in apostate unbelieving churches. They can add anything they want. They can take away anything they want. They can so work preaching or singing to fundamentally change what that means, all under the ban of reasonable and practical. It's pragmatism. But this same ideology is found in far too many evangelical churches. For example, many churches, it seems reasonable, and this is just one example, to add children's church as a part of their corporate worship. In fact, I grew up on this practice. I was born and bred on it. It seemed reasonable to my congregation that young children, as young as five or six, should should only participate in the first song of adult worship, of the adult worship service. And then after that, we'd be given a cutesy little Bible story, and then we'd be immediately skirted off the premises to the playground. And we can follow their logic. We can understand it. We get it. Children misbehave and cause distraction. So we need ways to minimize that in order that the rest of the congregation can be given to orderly worship. That's something that we can sympathize with. Now, we have a nursery, and we love our nursery. But our nursery is for the purpose that young infants and toddlers would not cause needless distractions for their parents or for other members. The mere fact that I'm doing this in front of young children should bring us to light. The nursery is for the purpose that God's people might better understand the Word of God. But it's also a tool that can help teach our children what biblical worship looks like. As a suggestion, and this is just a suggestion, around the age of two-ish, we should really start introducing our children more and more to regular service so that they learn the rhythms and patterns of worship of what we do here. Yes, they will scream. Yes, they will cause a ruckus. Yes, and they will do all those awful things that come to your imagination. But I'll say this. That's why we discipline them. And this is when we use the nursery for when they are too distracting uh, to keep so that we might better serve our other brothers and sisters here. Letter stream, it's okay. We want it. God's worship is something that we have to be trained in, right? It's something that we have to be trained in. Just like the rest of our faith. Even adults have to learn what biblical worship looks like. I mean, think about it. How many of us have to, you know, still have to learn how to perk up for the afternoon service after a long meal? We have to learn. We have to get used to it. So this does not mean that we shirk our, but using um, the nursery, this does not mean that we shirk our responsibility as their parents to train our children in what God requires in his worship. Brothers, we want our children to learn God's way of worship from an early age, teaching and explaining it to them. We don't need to add to our worship. We don't need children's church so that we can skirt them off the premises. 
because it seems reasonable and practical to make our worship easier for us. All we need is the biblical pattern for worship and for parenthood, even when it's more difficult or impractical to the world's eyes or even our own. Parents, get your kids in worship. Take them out, just as we saw it. Take them out when they get too fussy. But they learn. Children, let, let your kids fall asleep. That's good. And as they grow older, physically, emotionally, uh, 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 mentally, just continue to keep pressing on these things. It is a form of discipline. And we all had to learn this at one point. Some of us more so advanced than others. Now, this is just one example of pragmatism, uh, of how pragmatism finds itself into the modern church. And there are many other ways uh, and other uh, examples that we could study. But this is another. But there is another ideology that comes by way of pragmatism, and that is man worship. And this is far more sinister. This worship I am describing as man worship, even though it's done in the name of God and often with a sincere reverence. Man worship serves to promote the glory of man or a particular culture, and this is idolatrous, of course. Man worship is just another subtle way in which humanity applauds his own accomplishments or abilities through the means of Christian worship. For example, I want to particularly look at one aspect of man worship that is especially pertinent and powerful when we are speaking about the second commandment. And I say this with caution. The, 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 what we're about to look at is iconography, the use of icons or images in corporate and private worship. I tremble now. Now, this may be a little bit of left field for some. Why are we talking about images? Why, why talking about icons? Aren't ungodly ideologies more important to talk about? Why go down this rabbit trail? Well, I want to argue that iconography is one of the most prevalent way, ways in which the second commandment is broken in our day, even among evangelical churches. Remember that the second commandment in its original wording is this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness or literally a form of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And as we noted last week, Yahweh prohibited, Yahweh himself prohibited to be worshipped through the means of idolatry, through forms, through matter, through images that humans' hands had crafted. And when we saw that these idols and images often portrayed a quality of the gods being worshipped through the image. For example, false gods were worshipped at forest locations with figurines of their likeness carved into the trees. False gods were connected to these images. Often, uh, these false gods connected to uh, forest locations were connected to fertility and fruitful harvest, for example. In light of the Golden Calf episode, Moses in Deuteronomy 12 details that the second commandment is ideally kept when we abstain from attributing unbiblical practices to Yahweh and when we also worship Him as He has explicitly stated in His Word. And for the Old Testament context, and still for our day, it is without images. The same principle of no images of Yahweh applies in the New Testament era. Now then, hear what I'm saying, another caveat. I'm not saying that all images that are utilized are necessarily or inherently bad. If you have a picture book with the story of Abraham or David and so on to read to your kid, fine, go with God. 
or even if you have biblical images of grapevines or even angels on the window pane in some churches. It's okay, whatever. There may be some validity to these things. There might be some cautions that we should throw up. But that is up to the conscience of individual Christians and the desires of local churches. I'm not saying that if your mother... Uh, this is important. I'm not saying that if your mother who has a church with stained glass windows is outside the will of God. Far from it. Far from it. But we should note this. Neither the individual conscience nor the decisions of local churches are free to have depictions and images of the triune Godhead. This is outside the will of God, according to Scripture. Let me explain. Typically in modern churches, images of Christ are the big ticket item. Amen? These images are found throughout children's literature and are displayed throughout sanctuary, uh, sanctuaries of many lovely churches. And sadly, this commandment is often broken in ignorance of what God's Word, God's word forbids or in the belief that this prohibition is only an Old Testament thing. But the truth is, is that images of Yahweh, even Jesus, are the fashioning of images or idols that God has not called for. Images, uh, these images are not tools of worship that God has laid down for us in His Word, in His New Testament. To worship in this way is to constitute man worship. It's worship that in some way or another promotes or glorifies the work and activity of men. It is not a worship practice that we find detail in God's sufficient word for us. Now, some have argued that the apostles worshipped Jesus in his incarnate form. They visibly saw him, right? And this is very true. They did worship a visible representation. But catch this. It was not of their own making. Even in this case, the incarnate Christ, God still revealed the object and the means of worship. But this is not the norm for us in light of Christ's ascension. Christ's worship is to be done uh, uh, through his visible incarnation was a particular time, is for a particular event, a particular redemptive event. Christ is no longer bodily with us, but he has sent his spirit so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. And if one continues to insist that the images of God uh, or Christ are warranted, I want you to consider two things. First, in John chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but if you like John chapter 20, Jesus has appeared post-resurrection to the twelve, except for Thomas. At first, Thomas did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But once Christ appears again, Jesus rebukes Thomas for his unbelief. He states, Christ states in 20, verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John's gospel is rhetorically very strong here. Remember, John is purposely including this story that later believers in churches, just like us, would be guided by the same principle of believing, yet without seeing without seeing physically. And this is absolutely vital to the Christian faith. We believe not because we have seen Jesus visibly, but because the gospel, the spoken word, has come to us through preaching. In other words, we believe the verbal testimony of eyewitnesses, the scriptures, not that we are eyewitnesses ourselves. And isn't this the pattern found throughout the New Testament? 
We believe, learn, and are disciplined by and worship through the revealed means of the Word of God. Not the image of God. So, when we introduce images of the Godhead to aid us in worship, as is often the case, what does this say about our belief in the sufficiency of Holy Scripture? What does that say about our beliefs? Did God inspire pictures, brothers? Did He inspire a film? Or did He inspire the written Word? And does He bless the preaching of the Word of God? Is God's Word what it prohibits and what it exhorts? Is that good enough for us? The only answer is always yes. So why introduce unsanctioned means, unsanctioned aids into our lives? Yes, God has used these means like the Jesus film or the Bible series. God has used children's literature with images to bring people to Christ. We affirm that. We know that. We understand that. But the Word of God makes clear that the proper means, the proper means, the sanctified, the God-sanctioned means of bringing people in is through the presentation of the gospel, through the preaching of the Word, through the spoken Word. So, brothers, I ask you again, Is God's Word good enough for us? To further my point, consider this second example from a missionary point of view. We stated that idols or images portray what kind of God is being worshipped. Images communicate what is being worshipped. Mary Margaret has an aunt and, uh, and an uncle that served as missionaries in China for over 20 years. Meaning to do well, some of the missionaries that they were with used images and films that had depictions of Christ in order to reach the people, such as the Jesus film. But one common question by the Chinese was this. Why should I believe in the white man's God? Why should I believe in the white man's God? That's for him, not for me. You see, these films and images reveal more about how these missionaries conceptualized their Christ. It was a Jesus of their own making, their own culture, and their own way of thinking. Not necessarily or purely the Jesus of the Scriptures. Brothers, this simply shows that there is a unique purity to the preached word. And that preached word can come through English, through Mandarin, through Cantonese, through Portuguese... When we come to share the gospel or to instruct others in what God requires, we need to use the scriptures, not our imaginations, not our artistic sensibilities, not what we think is practical, but what God has revealed to us through his written and revealed preached word. When we preach Christ to whoever comes our way, we need to proclaim the word of God in its clarity and its purity, not the way that we see it but by the way that God sees it, by what God says alone. And brothers, just one final point. Isn't this the perversity of idol making? In the Old Testament, the word image and idol, they share the same semantic domain. They're they're synonyms. Brothers, the only image that God has given man is actually man himself. We are made in the image of God. We are the presentation of God to others. So we are, in one sense, idols of God. That is why it's so jarring and disgusting uh, when, when the Old Testament describes men making images and idols in the Old Testament. 
It's this picture. Men, image of God themselves, were making other images of false gods and then worshiping them. Brothers, we're not, we're the actual idols or the image of God. We are not gods, of course. We do not share in divine attributes. But we did originally reflect God's uh, uh, attributes himself. As Adam was originally created, he reflected God perfectly in holiness, love, and righteousness. Even after our fall into sin, God still provides the appropriate material image that reflects his holiness. Christ, as Colossians 1.15 states, he, Christ, is the image, icon, of the invisible God. And we are not to repeat the process like they did in the Old Testament period. We don't need a depiction of Jesus to aid in worship or to aid in teaching about Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you really want to teach your children about Jesus? Do you want them to come and know what Jesus was really like? Then don't show them pictures of Jesus. Show them Jesus and how you live. You'll teach your child far more in one day living like Christ, following His example, than in a lifetime spent in picture books. Use the biblical means God has given us, not your own, no matter how reasonable or lovely it may seem, no matter how cute it may seem. Use God's Word. Brothers, there are so many things that we must be reminded of. And for some of this, this may be very well the first time we're hearing this. Maybe even from a pulpit. I highly doubt that. All I ask is that when you leave tonight, if you're more interested in this, you must search the Scriptures to see whether these things be true. That is your homework for tonight. Now then, moving on to the exhortation of the Second Commandment in its New Testament context. Our second major point is what biblical worship looks like in the New Testament. What does the second commandment look like for us today? Last week I compared the ceremonial law to the keeping of the second commandment. We saw that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was the express will of God for how He was to be worshipped. If Israel wanted to know what God, how God wanted to be worshipped, they went to Leviticus, right? Now the New Testament does not detail what biblical worship looks like uh, it does uh, detail for us what biblical worship looks like. It doesn't have the long legal code that the book of Leviticus did, uh, but we do see examples of corporate and private worship in the narratives, in the stories, in the explicit uh, exhortations from the apostles from certain practice, for certain practices and ordinances. But for our purposes, I think we'll be better served if we turn to John 4. If you would there, uh, do that with me. John 4. And we'll be here for the rest of the evening. In John 4, we see Jesus is approached by a Samaritan woman while at the communal well. They start up a conversation, but Jesus begins to speak of her spirit, uh, about spiritual matters. You know, Jesus is pretty direct. He starts talking about things that are important. Starts talking about husbands and sin. They start up a conversation. They talk about these matters. And Jesus gets personal with this woman he reveals that he knows that about the woman's illicit relationship. But it's really interesting. This woman, rather than have this hard conversation with Jesus, the woman actually starts talking about something fairly interesting. She actually starts talking about corporate worship. 
Now, this is funny because I'm sure many of you have had this same conversation when evangelizing, when it starts to get a little bit more difficult. They start asking you, so what do you believe about the Bible? You know, what denomination are you from? Are you the ones who do this? Are you the ones that do that? It's the most annoying thing in the world. No, listen to the message of Jesus. Don't get me distracted about corporate worship. But the Samaritan woman does the exact same thing. She says this in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This was a theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews at that time. Now, biblically speaking, the worshipers were to go to Jerusalem. That was the revealed means. But notice that Jesus doesn't immediately respond to that. He says this in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. He continues in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper, true worshiper, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. With these words, John is illustrating that Jesus is doing away with the Old Covenant and its ceremonial laws. The old corporate worship system is being tossed out because it is no longer needed in light of Christ and His salvation and the New Covenant. But there are two things that we need to catch here in John 4. Our worship, our new covenant worship, must be done in spirit and in truth. What does this mean? First, what does John mean by truth? Ultimately, it's what we've been talking about uh, this past week and just previously. To worship God in truth is to worship in accordance with His revealed revelation and the clarity of the Word of God particularly in accordance with the Word of God made flesh, the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. So as we see in other parts of the New Testament, not only are we uh, are to take the godless ideologies or practices, uh, not only are we supposed to throw those out because they're out of step with God's Word, but we are also to take on the message of the, of the gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus. We should constantly be striving for God's sanctioning, God Christ-glorifying, commandment-keeping, biblical worship, just as we saw last week. Every aspect of our worship should be, have a scriptural warrant. There needs to be a scriptural reason for what we do. If there is no scriptural basis or reason for a particular worship practice, then it's not biblical, no matter how helpful or engaging it may be. Uh, just this day, I, I'm going to use your example, John, because it's so good. Uh, there is uh, an example of a church where a uh, worship leader asks, you know, to, to write down uh, a sin, I believe it was, and then rip it up uh, and then put it into this bucket of water on the altar. Why? Why? What, where's the scriptural warrant for that? Just so that we are clear, I think it's important that we get into the nitty-gritty of what biblical worship looks like. When discussing what constitutes biblical worship, theologians have articulated three areas or criteria that constitutes corporate worship. These components are called the elements, forms, and circumstances of worship. Essential elements of, are the components of corporate worship that we must have and must be presented in order for it to constitute true biblical worship. God has explicitly detailed and regulated in His Word what our worship should look like. 
Our worship should not have any element that is not present in God's Word. And our worship should only have those elements that God has detailed for us in His Word. In the New Testament context, we see five essential elements of corporate worship. Reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, singing the Bible, praying the Bible, and seeing the Bible through the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, for those who are taking notes, uh, some scripture warrants, these are just one for each. But 1 Timothy 4.13 for reading the Bible, 2 Timothy 4.2 for preaching the Bible, for singing the Bible, Colossians 3.16, for baptism, Matthew 28.19-20, we love that one, and for 1 Corinthians 11.26 for the Lord's Supper. Now these are only quick references of what uh, the New Testament expounds extensively for us. Each of these five elements really needs their own sermon, so I don't have time to go extensively into each element. That is another series for another time. If you need more scriptural warrant or explanation on any of these points, please come to see me after. I'm more than happy to discuss it with you. What I want to simply note is that these five elements alone are the clear, God-sanctioned, God-approved means by which we commune with our God in worship. Without these five elements in their integrity... A church does not properly worship God according to His Word. But when a church does follow God's commands, God delights and blesses that church because it is the biblical means that He has revealed for us to worship Him. God teaches us how to love Him. If the first commandment is about loving God, this is how we love God. Now with that said, I want to issue another warning. I'm getting into some deep territory here tonight. It may be easy for us to slip into a mentality that isn't healthy or factual. For many, it's very easy to get swept away with the worship wars of our day. For the churches that do keep and do not add to these five essential elements of corporate worship, we should say, and we would say, that that they are worshiping according to the Word of God, despite what the exact particulars look like. You see, the form of the elements may look a little different from how we practice For example, Grace Community, a body that we are thankful for and growing in fellowship more and more with, they keep these five elements in their integrity, but their worship looks quite a little bit different from ours. Using the term from earlier, both churches are called to sing the Bible, right? Both churches are are to sing hymns and spiritual songs and psalms. That is reflective of the scriptures themselves. But we may have more of a traditional style of singing where their style is contemporary. But both are biblically warranted. They're both biblically sanctioned. There is no line in Scripture that demands that we have traditional worship nor contemporary. God has simply given these matters for the local church to decide. Now we could go on days parsing out the differences between our forms and particular practices. But these churches are in agreement about what worship is. It's God's way. Not ours. There's also the circumstances of worship that the churches find themselves in. Are we in a rented building, in a house, an own piece of property? Doesn't matter. Are we in a neighborhood, the city, the country? It's where the people find themselves. Brothers, God has given us things to be concerned about with corporate worship. Forms and circumstances are not those things. Sometimes it's good for us to think through forms and circumstances, but we have to be sure that we get the right essential things. Of worship, making sure that we don't add or subtract from God's biblical worship. As long as our circumstances and forms don't hinder or alter the essential worship, 
we have the liberty in Christ to worship God in culturally identifiable ways. Now, elements, and to a lesser extent, form and circumstances, concern the worship of God in truth. Worship in its liturgical corporate expression is both set. We have certain elements that we cannot veer from for it to be biblical worship, but it's also dynamic. It's not an artificial uniformity. This is the great thing about the regular principle of worship. I can worship in China, Africa, Portugal, Denmark, anywhere that, the, that there are churches with sound doctrine in this biblical principle. I can see here in Jackson, Mississippi, traditional and contemporary styles. We all come from different theological traditions or cultural backgrounds as churches, but we still share the fundamental worship of the triune God as laid out in the Word of God. We all keep the second commandment. Now, I say this as someone who loves our expression of worship. I love me some hymns, and we ain't getting rid of them. I'll fight for that. And I do believe that we have some appeals for biblical wisdom for how we worship, for how our worship should look like, what our form should look like. But we may, must make the first things the first things. With that said, brothers, there's one final thing that we must look at if we are to truly keep the second commandment in the New Testament. And it is the most vital aspect of what true worship looks like. In John 4, our Lord spoke about worshiping in the Spirit. And it's this kind of worship that we need to ponder for our last point. In John 4, the reference to spirit characterizes what God is like, similar to the way flesh and body characterizes us. But spirit in the Old Testament context is also used uh, for renovative, creative, and life-giving context. In light of the broader context of John 4, what Jesus is saying here is that you must not only worship God correctly, but you also must worship in union with Christ through the Spirit. You must worship God as a renewed creature in Christ. Our worship as a renewed creature is highlighted when in contrast with worship in our fallen condition. Speaking of our fallen condition, Paul states this in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh, those who are in their fallen condition, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, those in their renewed condition in Christ, they set their minds on the things of Christ. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is not set on the flesh is for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and this is key, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, those who are outside of Christ, cannot please God, including in worship, particularly in worship. Brothers, this condition is the condition for all those who are outside of a saving union, a saving faith in Christ. Those who do not know the redemptive, renewing, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But brothers, if you have been born from above, renewed by the Holy Spirit, repented of your sins and have turned to believe and place your trust in Christ Jesus, then you are in vital union with Him. He is yours and you are His. God has sought you out to worship Him. And He is in that great continual work of bringing other sinners to Himself, other believers, to give them His Spirit so that they might worship Him as well. The purpose of our salvation is to give God the worship that pleases Him. We read this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers, if the first commandment is about loving God, then the second commandment is about what this love looks like. Also, it's easy for us to only read Paul here in a personal or devotional way. But note this. Yes, Paul is certainly wanting us to worship him in personal piety according to biblical principles. But the word here used in Romans 12 for worship is latria, a term used for public or for corporate worship. Also, Paul continues in verses 3 through 13 detailing what church life, even corporate worship, should look like. Just read the context. It's not just particular practices or elements, but corporate worship is an expression of love for God done in sincerity of spirit and guided by biblical practices. What we are doing here is called spiritual worship, brothers. We do worship or practice worship in our union with Christ Jesus and through the outflowing of the Spirit through our individual gifts. The second commandment in the New Testament isn't only about getting the necessary elements of worship right. It's more than just merely abstaining from idols, false worship, or worshiping God in the wrong way. It's about worshiping God as the church, God's people, God's holy people, God's redeemed love, and united to Christ's people. That's what the second commandment is all about. Worshiping God in spirit. When the church does right worship, when they get worship right, all we are doing is reflecting Jesus, serving one another in spirit and in truth, and thus praising our God in union and love. Brothers, I say this as my final exhortation. There have been some nettling questions, I'm sure. But I want you all to hear this, because this is the prima facie, most important aspect of the second commandment in the New Testament. We must come to worship biblically. That we must use our gifts as, as God has supplied to us. We must serve our fellow brother and sister. And you will reflect as the image of God, as the renewed image of God, as those who are made after the image of Christ. You will reflect God's original purpose for humanity. To reflect God in love, righteousness, and holiness. Brothers, we need to imitate our God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, in his life, and in his example. So then, brothers, give yourself to God and to one another. Brothers, keep the second commandment. Reflect Jesus Christ in your love for his church. And brothers, may we delight in this commandment because it's a commandment of love, not of artificial uniformity, but of love. How we love one another and thus bring our worship before our God in public worship. May our Christ be exalted in this church today, and may he be exalted from this day forth every single time we meet. Because this is our commandment of love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a law of love, the law of Christ. That these things aren't just mere opinions to follow, but they are commandments which we are to imbibe and to cherish. But Lord, we do thank you that 
These are words of life, that they are good words, and that we can offer up true, sincere, God-honoring worship as we meet here today. Lord, this is no mere ritual formula, but this is our life that we live out as those who have been redeemed in Christ. Thank you for bringing us all here. May you keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.